My name is Daniel, and please enjoy a little ghostly history from Long Island, just outside of New York City, and a house made famous by horror movies for decades. I can guarantee you've heard of it. It's called Amityville. The story of real violence leading to a haunting that remains questioned to this day. What's real? What's fake? And what's terrifying? Citizens focused on Ocean Avenue in November of 1974. This is when the DeFeo family was found dead inside their home. All but one. 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr., called Ronnie. He told police he escaped, running to the Henry's Bar in town, busting in and yelling, Help me! My mother and father are shot! A group of men gathered, and Ronnie led them to the house. The DeFeos were lying peacefully face down in their beds. One of the men called the police and after an initial investigation, they arrested Ronnie. Not because they thought him guilty, no. It was to protect him from an unknown killer. The reason? Ronnie told them the murders were a mob hit, that his father owed them money, giving the name of an assassin named Louis Fellini. In the moment, police believed it all. Then an investigation was done. Evidence revealed Ronnie was a liar. No sign of forced entry or any evidence of a stranger in the house. Plus, Fellini had an alibi. They questioned Ronnie again and he cracked, telling officers, it all started so fast, I couldn't stop, it was just so fast. And they asked him why his clothes were clean, he didn't answer. However, the belief is he took a bath, redressed, and dumped the bloody clothes. Later, the police said to reporters, Ronnie displayed characteristics of a methodical and calm killer. Quoted, who else could take a bath while his family lie dead in their room only feet away? The trial began. Enter a lawyer named William Weber who stood for DeFeo, entering a plea of insanity. Ronnie told police he heard voices inside the house saying, They talked to me, told me to kill them all. The prosecution argued back, said Ronnie was completely sane, blaming the murders on drugs and anger towards his father. More secrets came out, such as Ronald Sr. having a violent temper, taking it out on his wife, Louise, and of course, Ronnie. Ronnie was known as a weak child, showing his own anger through arguments that escalated to physical violence. The family blamed Ronnie's temper for all their problems, thinking if they could only fix the boy, everything would be fine. Ronald sent his son to a psychiatrist, but Ronnie rejected the doctor's help. They tried buying him off with money and gifts, including a $14,000 speedboat. Unlimited access to money didn't help him, instead gave him access to drugs, and by only 17 he was addicted to heroin. His anger got worse. The prosecution brought up two occurrences in his life. First, when on a hunting trip, Ronnie pointed a loaded rifle at his friend, and his friend ran, Ronnie chased, caught and cornered the kid like an animal, and then acting all confused, smiling Ronnie asked, why did you run? and second, when Ronnie almost killed his father. While in the house just after breaking up a fight between his parents, Ronnie leveled a loaded shotgun at his father's face and yelled, I am going to kill you, you fat fuck. 
he pulled the trigger and it misfired. We'd learn only weeks before the murders that Ronnie also robbed a local car dealership. His parents confronted him and he denied it. Ronald didn't believe his son hounded Ronnie, pushing hard, maybe too hard. They say Ronnie was quiet and calm, walking from room to room, firing round after round into each one. First his parents, two shots each to make sure they were dead. Then brothers Mark and John, one shot each, walking into his sister's room and shooting the youngest Allison and then turning to Don. But Don was awake. Evidence shows he walked up to her, pressed the barrel against her face and pulled the trigger. Shaggy, the family dog, survived, was tied up in the backyard. It was his barks that woke the sleeping neighborhood. The barks remain the only outside evidence of what happened inside. An easy verdict for the jury. They found him guilty on all six counts of second-degree murder. Ronnie DeFeo is still alive today, currently held at Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York, just a two-hour drive from Amityville. And I completely agree, by the way. If on that jury, guaranteed I'd return the same verdict, even if I knew the remaining mysteries, even if it doesn't make any sense. Like the Marlin rifle Ronnie used to kill. That model is very loud. The neighborhood was quiet. It's the middle of the night, yet no one heard the gunshots other than Shaggy. Ronald Sr., Louise, Mark, John, and Allison were all discovered lying face down in their beds, believed to be sleeping when Ronnie entered. This means the brothers and his sister didn't wake up after four ear-splitting rifle blasts from the parents' bedroom, all on the same floor and just feet away. And there's no evidence of drugging, as well the bodies had not been touched. Gunshots loud enough to hurt your eardrums. It's impossible to sleep through, but they did. Think it's ghostly? Maybe. If you ignore just one theory. Ronnie didn't act alone. During an interview, Ronnie told author Rick Asuna about Dawn, saying, She helped me. The evidence supports it. They found gunpowder residue on Dawn's nightshirt, showing she may have fired a gun and proving Ronnie's new story. He told Rick in detail that Dawn killed Ronald Sr. and Louise while he killed the brothers and Allison. Uh, this also solves the mystery of why the brothers didn't wake up after their parents were shot. It all happened at the same time. But then Ronnie kept talking, telling Rick Don and her friend did all the killing, saying, then I killed her to stop her. And I wrestled the gun away and shot her in the head. When asked about the mysterious friend, Ronnie simply said she ran away. Many times Ronnie changed that story, later denying he talked to Rick at all. The murder house in Amityville wouldn't have been the Lutz's first choice. The ritzy neighborhood was normally out of their price range, past events bringing down the price of a beautiful home. Just one year after the murders, George and Kathy Lutz moved in with their three kids. George was hesitant, though. The practicing Catholic brought in his family's priest. Father Ray immediately knew there was something wrong. He felt uncomfortable inside the house, especially an upstairs bedroom, telling George nobody should sleep in that room. And they listened. They made it a sewing room. The first few days were calm. 
random cold spots felt, but reasoned away as leaks in an old house. And then what they called the deadness of sound, said to be an unnatural quiet upstairs. Complete silence with no sound from outside. George tested it one day while standing in the upstairs sunroom. Looking out onto Ocean Avenue below, he said car after car drove by with deafening silence. The silence is ironic because it's sound that terrified the Lutzes. Late night noises plagued George. Sounded like the front door slamming shut in the dead of night. He heard heavy footsteps climbing slowly up the stairs. And another noise he described like a band tuning their instruments. All happening while his family slept as if unable to hear it. And one night George ran downstairs to confront the noise, finding only silence and their sleeping dog. His wife Kathy was affected too. One night George noticed her face, said she was aging right before his eyes. Not something a woman wants to hear from her husband, but even Kathy's mother saw it. And something followed Kathy around the house, at times feeling arms wrapping around her waist from behind, at other times smelling perfume. She said it was like what an old lady would wear. It all escalated and sleep inside the house was next to impossible for George and Kathy. The kids noticed their parents' stress, and that's when it turned to violence. George started having what he called foreign thoughts. They played out like a movie in his head, crazy images filled with blood and murder, each thought making him angrier. A now desperate George sought out the help of a priest who told him to leave the house for one night, just to test it to see if it's the house, and also for a good night's sleep. He didn't listen though. Instead, he decided to send Kathy and the kids to her mother's house. And that night was restful because, according to George, the presence followed my family. So the Lutz called in a man named William Weber. Remember him? Ronnie DeFeo's attorney. They wanted details about what happened to Ronnie just before killing his family. Did the boy have violent dreams as well? Reason? They loved the house and wanted to stay. Skeptics believe this is where the Amityville hoax began. George, Kathy, and Weber getting drunk and making up stories. Later it got out about Weber's criminologist. Said the man was brought in to help, but later found out that his name was Paul Hoffman, a journalist for Good Housekeeping magazine. Paul published the article that started the legend. The article was popular. The Lutzes quoted that they didn't want fake psychics claiming their story and getting it wrong. A local publisher solved this by sending them an author named Jay Anson. His book was called The Amityville Horror, published on Tuesday, September 13, 1977, only three years after the murders. The first movie was made in 1979, George and Kathy were part of the promotion, but to his credit, George spoke out against Hollywood's interpretation. Stuck to his family's experiences, but the main question hung over them all. Was it fake, or is the Amity House actually evil? From the moment George lived at Amityville, he told his friend about strange emotion. They were the ones to recommend Father Ray. And as you remember, the priest felt strange in what became the sewing room, said it was unnaturally cold, and felt an unbearable dread while blessing the corners. And then a deep voice telling the priest to get out, 
followed by a slap across his face. Father Ray was disturbed when walking past George, stopping only to say, don't sleep in that room, and heading out the front door. When interviewed, the police said blisters formed on his hands, clearly stating it was not ghostly though, just my anxiety. As well, Kathy heard scratching just after moving in. Investigators later confirmed that Ronnie DeFeo heard the same noise just before killing his family. And remember when the ghosts embraced Kathy from behind? She smelled the perfume? This was accompanied by a motherly feeling and comfort. Kathy believed it was Louise DeFeo trying to protect her. I mentioned George hearing strange noises, and later all the Lutzes would report different noises mainly at night. George saying the musicians tuning and playing their songs, and others also heard the heavy footsteps. And the flies, an iconic scene from the movies. It is true flies appeared in the house during the winter, the majority in what became the sewing room. What's not true, that the bugs attacked Father Ray. The legend of the bleeding walls, of course, this is fake. Said to originate from an innocent story about green stuff found on the floor of the playroom. Probably just disgusting kid stuff. The book said it was green slime pooling on the carpet. The movie turned it into blood. Plus Kathy's face. And the first time it happened, George woke Kathy in the middle of the night. She saw disgust on his face. He did say, you look like an old woman. Upset, Kathy ran into the bathroom. Looking into the mirror, she saw it. A wrinkled, haggard face looking back. She was back to normal in a couple hours. And then there's the witching hour. 3 a.m. Said to be the time that Ronnie murdered his family. George did constantly wake at 3 a.m. with feelings of dread. Sometimes getting up to check on the kids. And Jody. According to daughter Missy Lutz, was an angel appearing as a pig. No one else saw Jody. George later admitted seeing something. One night outside the living room window, described as two glowing red eyes. Kathy levitated one night. While sleeping next to George, he woke to her floating above the bed. Said his wife was moving towards the wall. He grabbed and pulled her down. Woke by the fall, she only saw George's terrified face. Enter Ed and Lorraine Warren. Paranormal experts made internationally famous because of Amityville. That history now overshadowed by the Conjuring movies. In 1976, two years after the murders and three years before the first movie, the famed demonologists arrived with a TV crew. They supported George and Kathy, agreed something was in the house, believing the ghost was a demon, evil and conscious energy that was never human. Here is some evidence from the investigation listed by the Warrens in February of 1976. While in the cellar, Ed saw a shadow moving along the wall. He never saw a ghost, that was Lorraine's thing, but it shocked him. Ed commanded the spirits to leave and felt something lift him off the ground, and when dropped, he left. It said Lorraine knew about and dreaded the house before even entering it bought artifacts connected to Padre Pio, the saint of safety. This calmed the very religious Lorraine. An investigator from Duke University witnessed a communication session with her and the ghosts. Something caused him to pass out, finding out later it was from heart palpitations. The investigation was stopped at 1am that night. 
After the investigation was done, a battle of words broke out between the Warrens and Dr. Stephen Kaplan. Kaplan was a self-proclaimed authority on what he called the hoax of Amityville. Ed told Kaplan to produce any challenge to the investigation, and Kaplan ignored him, later co-authoring a book called Amityville Horror Conspiracy. Years later, during an interview with a Babylon, New York radio station, Kaplan admitted to fabricating one of the hoax rumors. He ended the interview by saying, I will never go against the Warrens again. And finally, it said the spirit of a little boy appeared in a photo taken during the investigation. It became one of the most famous ghost photos in the world. The Warrens believed it was the youngest DeFeo's son, John Matthew. For skeptics, there's another theory though. A look-alike named Paul Bartz was an assistant during the investigation. Looking at this side-by-side -side comparison, it is hard to tell. You be the judge. In June of 2010, Lorraine Warren spoke at an event inside the Alumni Theater in Toronto. I was part of a promotion team for this event. This was only four years after Ed's death, and accompanied by her son-in-law, Tony Spera, she put on a very eye-opening, convincing presentation of a storied career. And during the Q&A, a local investigator stood and asked a question. Would you ever return to Amityville? Lorraine whispered no. She was visibly shaken at the idea, then saying, the media wanted Ed and I to go back, to do a documentary. I refused. Told Ed we could never, not again. I'll never go back there. That house affected our lives more than any other case. It tried to kill us. We've reached the end. This has been a ghostly history of the Amityville house. Do you think it's a hoax? What about the Warrens? Tell us below. Ghosts make history just that much better. Thanks for watching.